Okay. You, you let go totally only when you don't really need to let need to hold on anymore. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Get his hand over here. Can you get the mic? In this section, uh, you talked about the five feathers, ignorance being one of them. What, what, what does ignorance mean here? It means not, seeing things in terms other than the Four Noble Truths. In other words, you, you place an I or a, or, or not I on an experience, and the Buddha says that's ignorance. Now, ignorance is looking, okay, where is there stress? Is stress arising? Is stress a passing away? And what's causing that? Looking, looking at your experience with those questions in mind, that's, that's knowledge. Ignorance is looking at your experience not in those terms. Okay. Let's do a little 16 steps. Okay. Page two. <coughs> Mindfulness of in and out breathing. So, how is... Mindfulness of in and out breathing develop and pursued so as to be of great fruit and great benefit. Okay. There's a case where a monk, and the commentary also always makes the point that monk here means any serious practitioner, lay or ordained, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building, sits down folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect, setting mindfulness to the fore. Now that phrase to the fore is one of the controversial ones in this in this. Sutta. The Pali word is Bari Mukhang, P-A-R-I-M-U-K-H-A-M, with a dot. Now, literally, if you took the word apart, Bari Mukhang, Bari means around, and Mukhang means either face or mouth. And some people have interpreted it that you have to focus around your mouth. Um, or around your face. However, there is a passage in the canon where the word Bardi Mukham is specifically used with, it has a very clear meaning, it means the front of the chest. However, it seems forced to say that you have to put it either around your mouth or around your chest. An idiomatic meaning might also be, just bring it to the fore, bring it to emphasize it. This is something that's brought up, brought up to the fore, which is why I chose to translate it that way. Just this quality of setting mindfulness to the fore means, okay, I'm going to have an intention in mind and be very, in, very deliberate about what I'm keeping in mind. Because mindfulness is something we have all the time. You're always keeping something in mind. It might be, you know, the tune to some stupid commercial back in the 1950s, but you've got something you're keeping in mind. And for most of us, it's pretty unplanned. You know, things come up in the mind and they stick with us. And then we drop them after a while. And the Buddha is basically here saying that you want to establish mindfulness, be very clear about what you're going to keep in mind. Be very intent. Next, okay, always mindful. Try to keep mindful all the way through the breath. Always mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Okay, okay what is he going to be mindful of? Okay, one, breathing in long. He's going to discern, I'm breathing in long, or breathing out long. He discerns, I'm breathing out long, or breathing in short. You discern that you're breathing in short or breathing out short. You discern that you are breathing out short. Okay, those are the first things you just want to keep in mind. Just how's the breathing going? And you try to analyze it in terms of whether it's long or short. 
Now some breath meditation teachers will say, well, while you're doing long and short, you might as well do comfortable and uncomfortable. And see what feels good. In other words, you, you want to be more sensitive to what's going on with the breath. And here's another case where the word I is okay. Introductory meditation, but you notice in all 16 of the steps, the word I is still there. So the Buddha doesn't drop that yet, quite yet. Okay, beginning with step number three, though, there's a new phrase. You, you train yourself. In other words, you become intent. You're going to do something intentionally. Okay, this is one of the. This is where you begin to see that the development of mindfulness is not just bare awareness, and it's not just acceptance of whatever happens. You're training yourself. You've got an agenda. You've got something in mind, and this is what you're going to keep in mind. Each time you breathe in, you keep in mind the idea that I will breathe in sensitive to the entire body. Breathing out, you keep in mind, I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. Each breath in, each breath out. Again, this is another passage, this is another phrase that is controversial. What does it mean to be sensitive to the entire body? The commentary, um, which was written at a time when breath meditation had pretty much fallen out of favor. Um, there was another type of meditation that was preferred, and that was called Gassena meditation. Have you ever heard of this? It's spelled K-I-S-I-N-A. Gassena. And it's basically a meditation practice of staring. You stare either at a disc of different colors, or you stare at a candle flame, or you can make a hole in the wall and you stare at the hole in the wall. And the basic pattern of that particular meditation is that you try to block out all of your awareness of everything except that little tiny disk of color, that little tiny spot of light. You stare at it until you get to the point where you can see it even with your eyes closed. It's gotten that imprinted on your, in your nervous system. And then you keep staring at it until it turns into what's called the countersign, which becomes very bright. And then you try to expand that countersign to fill all your awareness. Now that became the paradigm for meditation practice in the time of the commentary. So when they were describing breath meditation, and the Buddha says, be aware of your entire body, that goes against the pattern. When you're trying to get focused on this one little spot, and the Buddha says, entire body. And so you get a passage in the commentary where it says, this cannot possibly mean your entire physical body. Because if you try to breathe through the entire physical body, you have the sensation that your body is made entirely out of beans or out of fat. <laughs> I.e., you can't get the breath through it. <laughs> Um, and so they say instead that what this entire body means is that you breathe in sensitive to the entire length of the breath, all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. Now to me that seems redundant with steps one and two, because if you're not with the whole breath in and out, how are you going to know that it's long or short? And secondly, the whole problem with this sensitive to the entire body, the only meaning for the word body throughout the text, and it's used several times, is your physical body. What's more important is when you start comparing these breath meditation instructions with other meditation instructions in the canon, all the images are for the state of mind that you're trying to develop are full body awareness. I don't know if you've ever heard of the four similes the Buddha has for, for jhana practice, but the first one is uh, they talk about a bathman kneading water into a, into a bowl of bath powder. He 
you might think of kneading water into flour when you're making bread. You want the water to fill the entire ball of dough. You don't want to have, you know, dry dough part of it and wet dough for the other part. You want everything to be equally moisturized. And the Buddha talks about, you know, when you get a sense of ease and a sense of um, rapture in the body, you try to work that ease and rapture throughout the entire body. For the second jhana, the images of a lake with a spring welling up inside the lake so that all the lake is constantly cooled by the cool water from the spring. There's no part of the lake that hasn't been cooled. Again, the images of taking the ease or rapture from the meditation and spreading it throughout the entire body. In the third jhana, the images of lotuses that grow in a lake and they're entirely immersed in the lake from the tips of the roots to the, even up to the top of the flower. They don't come up above the lake and they're entirely suffused by the cool water of the lake. And then the final image of the fourth jhana is of a person sitting with your body entirely covered by white cloth. There's no part of your body that's not covered by the white cloth. In the same way that in the fourth jhana you have this pure bright awareness and you let that awareness spread to fill the entire body. So, so obviously the Buddha is heading you in the direction of full body awareness, which is why I think the literal translation here is the best, that you're trying to be sensitive to the whole body all the way through the in-breath, whole body all the way through the out. Fourth step, you train yourself to breathe in and out, calming, calming, excuse me, calming bodily fabrication and breathe out, calming bodily fabrication. Now the term bodily fabrication here is translated elsewhere in the canon as meaning the breath. In other words, you let the breath calm down. And as you, if you've ever been breathing, you will notice that sometimes the breath is an involuntary process and sometimes it's voluntary. And the voluntary part of the process is the one that you tend to screw up the most. I.e., we all have this particular perception or conception of what happens when the breath comes in, what happens when the breath goes out, which muscles in the body have to contract, which muscles have to expand in order to get that breath in, in order to get the breath out. We will also have sensations. We have an in-breath has to feel like this. You can almost kind of feel it pulling up in your, in your face. All of this is actually added stuff. You know, the breath can come in and out with all this, with all this added preconceived notions about what's happening. And a lot of the calming of bodily fabrication is involved in calming, calming that stuff, the excess stuff that we put onto the breathing process, the unnecessary tension, the unnecessary pulling and pushing. You may notice that when an outbreath goes out, you push it out a little bit more just to make it clear to yourself now the outbreath is out totally. When you pull it in, you say, let's pull it in just a little bit more, just in case. All of that is bodily fabrication. And it makes the breath more, less comfortable than it has. It makes it more uncomfortable than it has to be. So what you're consciously doing in this fourth step is to notice whenever you, now that you've got this full body awareness established, okay, where in the body is there any unnecessary tension associated with the breathing process? In some cases, you can see it clearly. Other cases require that you change your perception of what the breath is. And for me, studying with the Ajahn Lee method in Thailand, the first big block was this. I mean, the idea sounded attractive. Breathe in the whole body, all the way down to the tips of your toes. Sounds cool. Okay, what does it mean? What are your breath sensations? What are not your breath sensations? 
where does the breath come in? And I immediately thought, well, the breath comes in here, and I've got one whole breath, I've got to get it down to my toes. <laughs> so I meditated like that for a while, and it got pretty oppressive. Then you start realizing, okay, the breath energy is comes in and out of the body from all directions. You've got the breath coming in and out of all your pores. If you don't believe that, go watch Goldfinger. <laughs> you know the golden lady? Why did she die? She couldn't breathe. Yeah, she couldn't breathe. Okay, there's already breath coming in and out of your pores. So when you when part of your it's it's these perceptions you have about the breath are like one mind talking to the other part. Say, okay, now do that breathing stuff because we need more breath. And how do you know what breathing stuff is? Well, you already have this little code. Well, this is what you have to do when you breathe. How about changing the code? Think of the body as a sponge. As soon as you breathe in, there's no obstruction anywhere to the breath energy coming in and going out. You will also find sometimes that, okay, if you think of the breath energy you know, being centered in one part of the body, as soon as you start breathing in, the breath energy has gone throughout the whole body already. Otherwise, you couldn't pull the, the more, the grosser breath in. The, the subtle breath already goes in, all the way down to the tips of your toes. Try breathing with that perception of breath. And you find that the whole process of breathing gets more and more calm, more and more refined, less and less oppressive. Let's stop right there after the first tetrad. What? Any questions on the first four? Oh, my, lots of questions. Okay. okay, okay. Let's have a right hand mic and a left hand mic. I find when the when the breath gets calm, the hardest thing for me to do is say what's in, what's out. Mm-hmm. I just lose it in, immediately. Mm-hmm. And I've decided to stop losing it. <laughs> I mean, to just forget about it, mm-hmm. what's in and what's out. Yeah. But I find it's almost um, a, a, it's, it's a bother to think of what's in right. and what's out. Okay, at that point, when it gets so still, what you've got to do is be aware of the whole body. Take that as your, as your frame of reference. And think of the breath, again, not only as the in and out, but kind of the energy stasis at that point in the body. And just be with that. Because there's a problem that if you're thinking of simply being with the in and out of the breath, and as you say, it gets more and more refined, you lose it. And you don't have a, you don't have a good focus or a good foundation for your, for your awareness. So what you want to do is you know, be aware of the whole body. And then when that gets still, you just say, okay, still. You don't have to think in, you don't have to think out. Just say, still, breath. And then stay with the stillness. And then it's just like a flow. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Next question, right behind you. I, I when I think of the bo- body and the breath going through, throughout the body, I have to use my imagination. Is that mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's part of the training. So you sort of visual, you use a visualization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you use the visualization as a, as an aid to be more sensitive to what's going on in the body. Okay, because the breath is not literally in the whole body. It's only you know. Well, it depends on how you define breath. Okay, so how do you define breath? energy? Oh, so it's an energy. Right. Mm-hmm. So where's the, how much of the attention is still on the in and out process, and how much is it in the field of energy of the body? 
that's really up to you. You start out with the in and out breath because that's the easiest to focus on. But when you find that you don't, you know, that you can be aware of the whole body as the, that level of energy throughout the whole body, that becomes your frame of reference. And then you drop the breath, or drop the in and out. You can drop the in and out, yeah. Because mm-hmm. what you're trying to do, as he says, you're trying to calm the bodily fabrication, which is okay, this process of creating these bodily sensations to get the air in and out. You find that you don't need to keep creating them, that the air, you've got plenty of oxygen in your blood and you don't have to do the pumping. So you allow that to calm down. You're trying to develop this full body awareness, full body sensitivity. And it's a lot easier to do that with just this idea, okay, this is energy. And we tend to think of our, our primary sensation of the body as being, phys- as being sort of solid. And then there's this stuff called breath that we pull in and push out. Well, when you close your eyes, what is your immediate ex- experience of the body? There's kind of an energy field. That's what he's talking about. That's your primary experience of the body. He's trying to get you back to that, that level of experience. And things that you tolerated. You know, there may have been blockages in the energy. You say, well, that, that must be a bone, so it has to be solid. But when you think, well, even before my experience of bone, there's experience of energy. If the, experience, if the energy is blocked, then we've got to do something about it. Thank you. Can yeah. mm-hmm. you Ah. <laughs> what is the um, What was the Pali word for train? Train. Sikati. Sikati. S i k k h a t i. Okay. Thank you. And also, what is the sutta? Uh, the self is its own mainstay, its own refuge. That's in the Dhammapada. I've forgotten which verse. Deal? Can you remember? Two Dhammapada translators, and we can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. In the most reviewing uh, this sutta of all the past couple of days, in anticipation of coming here, the thing that this is the section that I really somehow focused on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really, I'd already been dealing with the whole thing about fabrication. I mean, I certainly accept conceptually, intellectually, uh, the idea that, that uh, everything is mental. In other words, we fabricate everything, our bodies and everything else, all of our experience. I don't, I don't challenge that intellectually. But when I was going over all of this, um, I mean, you can notice it. I can notice it when I'm following the breath. How you know everything, almost every thought that comes up, I have to bring myself back to the breath. Has something to do with fabrication. Uh, I just want to be sure that I'm clear about what the Buddha means with reference to fabrication, and say as opposed to becoming. I mean, I don't see. I don't see that the natural inclination of my mind is to accept anything as it is. If, if something has gotten nicer, I want it nicer still. This mm-hmm. has to be a step towards somewhere else, mm-hmm. which in, it seems to me is also fabrication. So is there some distinction there? Well, the, the, fa- uh, the word fabrication, sankara in Pali, is um, it's a huge blanket term. It covers all kinds of stuff, beginning from simply the, the process of putting things together all the way through any intentional putting together in the mind. And you were right to say, yeah, the, our present experience is all fabricated. It's either the result of past intentions, or it is the actual current intention to shape this raw material. And then there are the immediate results of that current intention. So all this comes under fabrication. 
Now there are different types of fabrication. Becoming is a type of fabrication when you create this world. And then birth is a type of fabrication when you create an identity inside that world. Birth, the birth, of, you know, in, if you look at ever look at dependent core arising, you've created this world, but then you decide, okay, there's, I'm going to be in that world. You create a little identity that goes in and becomes a player in that world. That's also a kind of fabrication. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, That's one of. The, actually, you start having ideas about the self beforehand, and then you move it into a particular, particular field of, you know, particular world. That's the birth. But what, what is, is, is there anything apart from fabrication? Nirvana. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing apart from fabrication there is. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Where's the nearest floating mic? Okay. My question is about knowing mm-hmm. when you're doing this mm-hmm. and, and noting. Mm-hmm. Noting. Should, you know, when it's in and out, but then when it becomes just energy mm-hmm. and it's. Should you be, and there's a knowing, mm-hmm. but should you be n- noting? Each, each little coming and going of each little energy just, dot? Yeah, I just, yeah, I just, I'm confused about that process. Okay, when, when the in and out is obvious enough for you to focus on it as the topic, or stay with the in and out side. Okay, when it gets more and more calm, you've, you've got to get to this full body awareness. Notice here, the Buddha recommends you go full body awareness first, then you calm, calm things down. So he wants you to get to full body awareness as quickly as possible. Once you're there, okay, make you remind yourself, okay, whole body breathing in, whole body breathing out. Well, however the breath flows, you want to get the whole body as your main focus of awareness, your frame of reference. Because as the breath gets more and more still, you get so that you can't follow the in and outs. But you still want to be just whole body. And just maintain that. That can be the note in your mind, whole body. And if it's still, okay, whole body still, whole body still. And try to keep the noting as very light and unobtrusive as possible. Right. This is the, he's giving a foundation here so that when things change, you've got a place to go. And you're not just kind of left hanging. Can you speak into the mic? So and the intention right. that to train yeah. is okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the intention is essential. Because what the Buddha points out, you know, the main factor shaping our experience is this fabricating of you know, through intention. And what he's trying to bring this out is bring this out through the practice. You keep an intention in mind. I'm going to be aware of the whole body as I breathe in. I'll be aware of the whole body as I breathe out. That's the intention you're keeping in mind. This is what mindfulness does. It keeps the intention in mind. And then the alertness to the body, that's something that grows out of the intention. Because as you, as you go through the meditation, more and more and more, you're going to find how really huge a role intention plays in shaping your experience. Even just your you know, basic experience of the body. I mean, things as intimate as the breath. Intention comes first. So he's trying to get you in touch with that. Because it's, I mean, one of the 
the mysteries of the present moment is why do we have this freedom of intention in the present moment? And we've got things coming in from the past, all you know, results of our old karmic baggage. But we have the, the ability to shape it, and we have the freedom to choose. Not everything is determined. So freedom, lie, freedom in our experience lies around this issue of intention. So the Buddha is trying to get us to focus here, and this is one way of doing it: setting up this training in mind. Okay, I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to be aware as I breathe in. This will be how I'll be aware as I breathe out. And just keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> Question. Where's the other floating mic? Is intention um, identical with volition in the dependent origination? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, when they talk, talk about volitional formations in dependent arising, that's something else. What is that? I wouldn't translate it as volitional, volitional, volitional formation. Just the plain fabrication is sankara. You look under nama, rupa, or name and form, intention is right there. Question over here. My first experience with um, feeling the breath like that in the whole body and, and working with it was in training in Qigong. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about the utility of using something like a Qigong practice or? Uh, yoga, pranayama practice with uh, this work? It's, it's helpful in getting you sensitive to the body. Um, I myself haven't done that much. I, I've got one Qigong exercise that I do but, um, and a little bit of yoga. And I found that it you know, helps. I've actually found that breath works get you better at Qigong <laughs> and yoga. I think they, both sides help each other. The problem is, in some pranayama exercises, they actually have you control the breath too much. Because what we're trying to get get in touch with here is what really feels best for the body right now. How are you directly experiencing the breath? And learn how to adjust the breath in line with what you're experiencing. The purpose of that is to refine your your discernment. Any other questions? Okay, next tetrad. <coughs> you train yourself to breathe in, sensitive to rapture, and you train yourself to breathe out, sensitive to rapture. Sounds good. Okay, how do we do that? Um, you'll notice as you're working with this process of trying to calm the bodily fabrication, if you think of your body, your awareness of the body, close your eyes for a minute and notice, okay, what do you experience in the body right now? Do you experience salinity? Do you, do you experience the skin? Or do you just have this kind of fog of sensations? It's basically these little sensations that are kind of impinging and coming and going away, coming and going away. And when you breathe in and breathe out, have, do you ever squeeze any of these sensations? Do you put pressure on them? Do you try to force them into a different shape? Do you notice yourself doing that? Okay. Can you breathe in and out without doing that? Notice which parts of the body you tend to squeeze most. Or just find one part that you tend to squeeze a lot when you breathe in. 
and just telling yourself, now I'm going to breathe in without squeezing it. And just stick with that. Keep that intention in mind. Allow the, allow the sensation just to be. And if you stick with it long enough, you'll find that there's a sense of fullness that develops in that sensation. It's not squeezed anymore. It's just allowed to be itself. Okay. That kind of sensation is something the Buddha calls a foothold for rapture. And the more of those you can get going, and the more continually you can get them going, and the more you can connect them, you've got rapture. Now the Pali word for rapture here is bitti. It's related to the word for drink, something you drink in. It's also related, it can also be translated as refreshment. It feels refreshing not to keep squeezing that stuff. And you will find, and again, it's, it's one of these things that requires a good amount of concentration in order to maintain it. It's so easy to slip off and start squeezing it again. But if you can keep that sense of that squeezed sensation not happening, that, that little sensation is just allowed to be there without being squeezed. And then you find, as you get sensitive to that, you begin to realize there are other spots in the body you've been squeezing as well. And you just try to go through the body and no longer squeezing things. Some people, when they do this, get a sensation that they're about to drown. Because all the muscles they normally use for breathing are not, are not being put into use. Trust me, you will not drown. <laughs> you will actually get all the breath you need without squeezing these parts of the body. You allow that to happen, and there will be a sense of rapture. Step number six is to train yourself breathing in and out, sensitive to pleasure. The pleasure, the word pleasure here, sukha, can also be translated as ease. which is a more refined feeling than rapture. It's not so full, it's not so... that Some people, I found, actually dislike a feeling of rapture when it comes up in the meditation, because they feel like they're losing control. And once you've had enough of the rapture, you say, okay, enough. And this doesn't mean that you're going to go back to squeezing. It means that you're just going to allow things to relax very much. Whatever part is fighting the rapture, you allow that to relax as well. And so what this does, dealing with the, the calming of the bodily fabrication and being sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to rapture. I use the word sensitive here because these, these things exist as potentials in sort of the field of your bodily experience. And if you're not sensitive to them, you run roughshod over them. But if you are sensitive to this potential, you can give it a space and allow that, that potential to develop. Okay, once you've gone through that sense of rapture, and it's, it's supposed to be refreshing. Because for the most part, our, our sense of the body tends to be starved of energy. Because we've been pushing it around, pulling it around, especially when you start thinking about things. Have you ever noticed what happens to your body when you think intensely? All these weird patterns of tension come in. And 
I was reading a Chinese medical treatise one time that says people whose jobs are spent in thinking actually use up three times as much energy as people who spent their days in physical labor. Because for the one thing, you're using a lot of physical energy in very subtle ways, and secondly, it's hard to stop. You've got a, you've got a mental job. You don't leave it at the office, you take it home. And it's there with you almost all the time. Physical labor, when it's done, it's done, you're home, relax. Have a beer, turn on the TV, whatever. <laughs> but with mental labor, you're, it's constantly there. So what you're trying to do here is be more and more, give the body more space. Allow it, whatever parts have been starved for energy, feed them the energy they need. Once they've been fed, then you can calm down. Let them be still. A traditional way of describing the difference between rapture and pleasure is you've been going across a desert and you finally come to some water. Now rapture is what you feel with that first drink of water. And then when you continue drinking, then it turns into just plain old pleasure. It's not the same obsession. One of my favorite stories from Thailand is of a, a nobleman who eventually became king, was separated from his troops one time, and he came across this one house. <coughs> there was a young woman in front of the house, about 16 years old, and he asked her for some water. And so she went to the well, and she got a bowl full of water. In Thailand, they drink out of bowls. And she filled the, water, the bowl with water, and then before she handed it to him, she took a lotus flower, and she crushed it up and sprinkled the stamens of the lotus all across the, the top of the water, handed it to him. Here this poor guy is thirsty, and he gets this lotus crap on his water. <laughs> and so very carefully he has to drink through the, the water so he doesn't swallow it, as doesn't swallow the lotus stamens. And then we handed it back to her, and he asked, was that a trick? And she said, no, I saw you were very thirsty, and I was afraid you might choke on the water if you drank it too, too quickly. He said, where is your parents? Are your parents around? <laughs> and being a Thai nobleman, he took her off to the, his army camp. <laughs> but, so watch out when you meditate. Don't gulp down the water. You know. But it's, it, there is this, you'll find that there are times when you come to the meditation really, really weary. And this is one way that you can deal with the weariness very fast. Just think, okay, what am I squeezing in my body when I think? What am I squeezing when I breathe? Let's just stop that squeezing and allow it to be for a while. And then once that sort of the need for intense relaxation is over, then you can it goes to a sense of ease. Where the body really doesn't impinge that much on your awareness at all. Then you're able to see the mind. And this is where we get into seven. I will breathe in sensitive to mental fabrication. Now mental fabrication here is feeling and perception. Feeling being the, the, the feeling tone, pleasurable, pleasant, um, painful, or neutral. And perception being the way you label things. Once the body gets, the, the, sort of the, the movement of the energy in the body gets more and more calm, you find that mental events come more and more to the fore. You see them more clearly. The analogy I like to use is of tuning into a radio station. If you're, if you're right on the the frequency, you can hear things clearly. If you're a little bit off the frequency, then there's a lot of static and you can't hear what's being said. Or if it's music, the music doesn't sound as nice. But when you get everything right on 
right on the frequency, then it's all clear. In the same way, when all this movement of the energy in the body finally calms down, okay, then you can see the mental side of fabrication, which is this activity of feeling and perception. And so once you become sensitive to the movement of feelings and perceptions, noticing how one particular way of perceiving things is more pleasant than another, one way is, is more stressful than another, then you move on to step eight, which is to calm these metal fabrications. All the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. In other words, you're trying to find the, the perception which is the most subtle, causes the less stress, the less sense of burdensomeness. So that the feelings are calm and then the perceptions then become very calm as well. Any questions on that tetrad? Just like I'm not sure what you mean by squeezing in the body. Like, is that like a resistance or something? Or it's your idea of what you have to do physically in order to get the breath in. Are there any parts of the body where you feel a pulling? So, like control, like a sense yeah, of control. Yeah, the sense that you're trying to control, or you're trying to augment the breath, make it come in faster, make it come in deeper. Where are you putting pressure? in your body when you do that. And then you try to let up on the pressure and then stay and, and keep, basically keep the pressure off of that spot all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. And, make, and, try, and so, as I said earlier, sometimes people will try to put a little squeeze at the end of the breath or the beginning of the breath, especially when you're meditating, to let yourself know, okay, now in, okay, now we're going to go out, out. But you don't you don't do that. Just allow it to have this kind of. If it's going to come in, it's going to come in. If it's not, it's not. You just allow those sensations, and it's a, a, a pattern of tension. You may find that's corresponding to the way you breathe. You just allow it to dissolve, and you keep it dissolved. Try that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Olivia. Oh, just like tetrad. Oh, tetrad means a set of four. Questions back in the back. When you talk about calming the perceptions, do you mean uh, there's a more or less skillful way of actually the language that you use in your perception? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, when, like when you have a pain, if you say pain, 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 that's not a calm perception. If there's sensation, sensation, it's a calmer perception. Or with the breath, you can think of, again, breath energy just being very refined, kind of mist in the body, if you just hold that perception in mind. Because perception here can either be visual or linguistic. Then you find that there are more and more you know, refined ways of perceiving the breath process. You just stick to whatever is most refined. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Perception 
And again, you can, it can be either what the feeling is or what it means. Now, many times the feeling means something if, it's, if it means, like especially if there's a pain. When you put the feeling perception of pain on that sensation, it means I've got to do something about this. If you put the label, it's just a sensation that doesn't carry the, you know, sort of the, the meaning that you've got to do something about it. In perception, you might be able to put it in words for yourself. Right. I'm just trying to correlate this tetra to my own meditation experience. And when you, it seems like for me, when I get past the place of the rapture and the pleasure, there's a kind of less of a sense of the body. There's kind of an expansiveness. And with that, it sounds like what's, what he's maybe trying to point to here is like, well, then what do you pay attention to when you're kind of not so aware of your body anymore? There's, it's, it's like, where's your tether or where's your anchor? Exactly. And, one thing for me that comes up in that moment is kind of there's almost a very subtle panickiness to it. I was like, well, now what happens to to me or where you know kind of where am I now? Mm-hmm. And so it seems like he's kind of trying to help you have a sense of mind observation at that mm-hmm. point. Right. That's very subtle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you can do once you get to this point where everything is very very still in the body. One thing you can do is go for space. Mm-hmm. But here he's saying, well, why not try just looking how how your perception of the body affects the mind. Because when he's talking about feeling, it's not just physical feeling, there's going to be a mental feeling. And, and you begin to see the, that certain perceptions will move you out of that stillness, other perceptions will help keep you in. And so you, you, you go with the calmer ones. You just stick with that. So it's getting you more and more into mind observation, yes. Because mm-hmm. as I said, you've got all this energy stuff kind of taken you know, out of the way. The body feels good, everything, and basically, okay, now we're going to settle down and work on the real issue, which is the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, let's move on to the next tetrad. Step number nine. Years back when Larry Rosenberg was writing his book on breath meditation, he would call me up and say, let's talk about nine. Nine what? <laughs> then I realized, oh, okay, step number nine. It was great for having to memorize these things. <laughs> he trains himself, I'll breathe in, sensitive to the mind, and he trains himself, I'll breathe out, sensitive to the mind. Now, mind here can mean in anything from your, the state of your mind, it's going to be your emotional, mental activity in the mind. Also, you can just be generally sensitive to just this bright awareness that comes at this state of concentration. The first meeting will relate to what comes on later. The, the second meeting, when you get to this point, you begin to see exactly how still the mind can get, how luminous the mind can get in concentration. This gives you something to compare because you will then begin to realize it's not always going to stay that way. But you have tasted you know, the, the luminosity of the mind, the stillness of the mind. And you can, now from that point on, you, you have something to compare all your other mental states with. 
Now the Buddha doesn't say, well, just because, when you notice that it's impermanent, you say, okay, it's impermanent, it's constant, just leave it at that. He says, no. Step number ten. I will train myself breathing in, satisfying the mind, breathe out, satisfying the mind. In other words, when the mind begins to get a little bit dissatisfied with whatever its state is, you learn how to give it some satisfaction. Now this may bring change in the way you breathe, change in the way you perceive things, either bodily fabrication or mental fabrication are your tools here for helping to keep the mind state as clear and as calm as you want it. In some cases where it's, it needs a little encouragement, this is what the satisfaction is for. The, the term that's used as satisfying the mind here can also be used gladdening the mind. When the mind feels depressed, when it feels low, okay, how can you give it some more energy, give it more encouragement? Step number 11, you breathe in and out, steadying the mind. Okay, if the mind is, is not quite as steady, so it's beginning to get a little loose and wobbly, you figure out some way of getting it more firmly implanted on its object. Again, either through the way you fabricate the breath or the way you fabricate feelings and perceptions. And then finally, releasing. I'll breathe in, releasing the mind. I'll breathe out, releasing the mind. Releasing here refers to releasing it from a grosser mental state and bringing it to a higher mental state. And if you notice that okay, the mind has gotten totally out of concentration, you can release it from all the, 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 the hindrances and the other things that keep it out of concentration, and you get it back in. Once it's back in, you say, this, this state of mind I have here, even after I've gladdened it and steadied it to some extent, still has some element of stress, some element of um, burdensomeness to it. Let's see if we can release it from that. Now classically they talk about when you go from the first jhana into the second jhana, you've released it from the factors of um, directed thought and evaluation. You know, in other words, you've, you're adjusting the breath and everything, you're sort of working it, you're kneading the water through the dough. And then you realize it's, it's, it's all needed. I don't need to do any more kneading. You say, okay, then you just stop that unnecessary activity and just stay, stay, stay with the breath. Okay, that's called releasing it from the factors of the first jhana and bringing it to a more refined state, which would be the second jhana. And then you can follow that all the way through the different stages of concentration. So in other words, what he's talking about here is once you've got the mind to a point where you can really watch it and you can begin to see what, what the mind state is, um, what a luminous mind of concentration, what that's like, then you learn to master this skill. It's not that you hit it once and you're done with it. You learn to bring yourself to the point where it, when, whatever situation you're in, you figure out, you can figure out what's, what, you can read your mind, basically. What does it need? Is it getting kind of depressed? Is it getting kind of low in its energy? Well, what can we do to give it some more encouragement, to give it some, you know, some visceral satisfaction out of being concentrated? And then if you find that the mind is too energetic, maybe it needs some steadying. Just to calm it down. So that it's more and more firmly in the object. And then finally, once you've got it firmly there, you say, okay, is there something better than this? Is there still some kind of burdensomeness? Is there still some stress? What am I doing that's unnecessary in this particular training of the mind? A couple of years back, I was reading a book on, um, on swimming, learning how to be a good swimmer. And they point out that 
when you're when you're doing any kind of uh, practice for sport, it's not just a matter of putting in time, but it's also a matter of learning how to do what you're doing more efficiently. You really really observe all the all the unnecessary movements you're making in the course of this swim stroke, and drop the unnecessary ones so that you can become a faster swimmer and it's less of a burden on you to go swimming through the water. The same thing applies to learning a musical instrument. Um, learning how to play those, you know, those runs on the piano that sound like like they're made out of liquid. Okay, it's it's learning how to do it with a minimum amount of effort. You learn it to be more efficient. In the same way, as a as a meditator, you want to learn how to keep the mind centered more and more efficiently with less and less effort. Remember, one of one of the people staying at the monastery one time was complaining about how you know, she was trying to keep with the breath in, in the midst of some pain in her body. And I said, well, you know, just leave the pain alone, stay with the breath. And she says, I tried it. In the last five minutes of the meditation last night, it was just really, really painful. And it was, I really had to put in this heroic effort and I just saying with each breath all the way in, all the way out. And I think she was trying to get me to say, well, you don't have to be that, put that much effort in, just be more relaxed. And I said, yeah, that's what you have to do. She looked at me, ah, is it going to be like this all the time? I said, oh, no. But when you're learning to do it, you really do have to put a lot of effort in to get the mind under control. Once you've learned it, keep doing it again and again and again and get more observant about what you're doing. So you do it more efficiently, it takes less, less effort, and then you can release the mind from, in this case, release the mind from the unnecessary effort that's, that's being put into it. So that's the third tetrad. Any questions on this one? Um, my sense of it is there seems to be a major leap between all the previous steps and step 12. Yeah. In that it seems like all the preceding ones are very active, what you're actually doing, whereas 12 seems to be much more passive. Now you're kind of letting it all go. Mm -hmm. Is that a correct understanding? Well, it's all the way up. You're trying to, trying to find a balance between too much activity and too little activity. Because again, that, that being sensitive to pleasure and sensitive to rapture, you're certainly doing something, but you're also telling yourself physically, don't do these you know, painful ways of breathing or stressful ways of breathing. And sometimes in order to observe that, you just have to be very, very still to see where it's happening. So it's a combination of, of being active and being more passive. And in this one, for number 12, it's Again, you have to be active in looking, okay, where in the mind is it still unnecessary effort? But then as soon as you see that, you drop it. So it's a combination of, of sort of active questioning and inquiry, and then when you see anything that's painful or unnecessary, drop it. Question right next to you. When, when you say unnecessary effort yeah. in the mind, do you mean our stories, or, or, or what? Hopefully, we left our stories at the door. <laughs> but you do have a story about your breathing. So, okay. Yeah. So the story about my breathing. I'm not talking about what I'm thinking about, or. As I said, we hope we left that a while back. Oh, <laughs> it's a hope. Okay. Yeah. 
But what he's trying to do is, and it's, it's a lot easier to get out of your stories. Um, if you look at the Buddha's, if you follow the Buddha's example, in which when he, you know, the night of his awakening, he started out with a story. He wanted to know, have I lived in the past? And so he started to see what his story was, and he found out it was a long story. I mean, it goes back aeons. And if you think your stories are complicated, <laughs> all, the th- all the stories of previous lifetimes. My teacher once said, it's a good thing we can't remember our previous lifetimes, because then we have lots more issues with lots more people. <laughs> but, so the Buddha, you know, followed the narrative back. And I've always thought the narrative is interesting. And he said, okay, I was born in such and such a place. I had such and such a name. This was my name. This was my appearance. This was my food. This is what I fed on. Such was my experience of pleasure and pain. Such is my death. That's life right there. Name, appearance, pleasure, pain, food, death. <laughs> and then he just followed it back. And it was all in terms of you know where I was, where was I, and it's sort of the I, 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 I. Just trace this I back as far as we can go. It goes way back. And this is, I mean, Freud, Freud had nothing on the Buddha that night. <laughs> But then he realized, okay, then the next question was, is this just me? And then he directed his, his thoughts, his, the question to, okay, what about other beings in the universe? Does this happen to them too? And it turns out, yes, everybody. He saw, he saw beings dying and then being reborn in line with their actions. Now this performed two very useful purposes. One was, it got him out, got out of the narrative. He began to realize, this is a universal pattern. And again and again and again, throughout the Buddhist teachings, he points out that if you can universalize your issues, realize you're not the only one. It takes a lot of the burden off. For some reason, like in contemplating, I know your your mother dies. Well, everybody's mother dies at some point. And for some reason, that makes it less of a burden, because it's not just you. Why is this happening to me? It's, well, it happens to everybody. But the second time, seeing that it's universal, then you start looking for the pattern. And this is where the Buddha said, you know, people's actions die and are reborn in line with their actions, their intentions. That's what brought him back into the present moment for the third knowledge, which is, well, let's look at intention in the present moment. And that's where he saw things in terms of the Four Noble Truths and gained awakening. So, before you get out of your... Before you sit down to be in the present moment, Look at yourself, acknowledge your story, and then see, okay, is this universal? Is it just me, or are there lots of people like this? And once you get out of the just me, then it's a lot easier to settle down with what, you, what you've got. So, releasing the mind, I mean, if you find yourself entangled in the story, the first thing you should do would be, okay, what kind of story is this? And you try to look at it in terms of the, the Buddhist teachings on the hindrances. Is this a sensual desire story? Is this an ill will story? Is this a sloth and torpor story? Is this a restlessness and anxiety story? Is it an uncertainty story? And you see, okay, this is a, this, these are just these plain old hindrances. No big deal. And you say, okay, I've had enough. I've seen, I've, I've, you know, this is a movie I've watched lots of times, and it doesn't even star Humphrey Bogart. You know? <laughs> okay, and he's okay, enough. And then you drop it. And then as you get the mind into states of concentration, you find that you stick with a particular way of relating to your breath and a particular way of relating to your body, relating to your mind. And then as you get more and more used to it, you find that you get more and more refined 
more and more skillful, more and more efficient in getting the mind to stay down, getting it down, getting it to stay. Or then when you come out of meditation, maintaining that sense of center in the body without losing it so fast. All this is related to these steps of steadying, gladdening the mind, satisfying the mind, and then releasing it from anything that's unnecessary. Because you're already looking at your mind in terms... Right here, he's having you look at the mind in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Where is there stress? Where can it be released? So he's getting you in that direction already. In fact, he's gotten you there from the very beginning, calming bodily fabrication. You know, that, the pulling in and the pushing out and the, and the pinching of the breath at the end of the pinching or whatever. You learn hands off because it's not necessary. Unnecessary stress. And then he has you go deeper and deeper and deeper and see, okay, where is there still unnecessary stress even in these deeper states of mind? And this is getting you used to looking at things in terms of stress, the cause of stress. What am I doing that's causing the stress? How can I abandon that? How can I stop that? that action. So it starts from the stories and works in. Okay. Okay. Welcome. There's a question here. Oh, let's, the, let's let the mic travel. You have a question? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, what do you do if you find that that you slip into the story mm-hmm. in the middle of the breathing. Mm-hmm. What do you find helpful? Oh, just all kinds of stuff. Um, just that one thing. I mean, if this were a movie, would I pay money to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> or if it's a story about you know what I have to do, and it, it's it's not that it's not that pressing an issue. So I could die before this ever happens. In fact, I could die right now while I'm meditating. Do I want to die in the middle of this story? Or to be caught... <laughs> I wouldn't want to be caught dead in this story. You know? <laughs> and, and you've got it... It's, it's kind of like Miss Manner. She had her, her Kafka relationship reducer. Miss Manner's Kafka relationship reducer is that you know, instead of telling the other person that you're going to break up, you just disappear. In other words, you don't you don't feel that there are any un, un you know I've got to tie all these loose ends together before I get out of this story. I'm just going to cut enough. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, you have no obligation to finish the story. It's not like a TV show where once you get sucked in, you have to see it to the end of the half hour. <laughs> But just try, try to think of it in those terms. Pull yourself out of the story and look at it as, as a stranger might look at it. Or if again, if the, if the hook in the story is, you know, poor me, I am such a, you know, I am such a miserable person either because I'm such a fool or because other people are nasty. Step back and say, look, there are other fools, there are other nasty people in the world. It's, it's, <laughs> that's such a big deal. <laughs> and then you can move on. Okay, there's a question here. We talk sometimes about jhana, mm-hmm. and uh, are we entering jhana states when we're in that concentration? Can mm-hmm. you be a little more clear about what you mean? Mm-hmm. 
jhana is, it's related to the word means to burn steadily. Um, they have different verbs in Pali for burn, and the one that's related to jhana is called jayati, J-H-A-Y-A-T-I. And it's the, the, the burning of a, an oil lamp, which is a very steady kind of flame, the kind of flame that you can read by. And, which it, and they have other verbs for burning in Pali, which they also use for the mind, like when you're burning with desire, you're burning with um, anger. It's a different verb entirely. That's the kind of that's the kind of fire you can't read by. What you're trying to do is get the mind really steadily focused on one object. Okay, it's still it's still attached to the object, but the fact that its its focus is steady is that you begin to see the mind a lot more clearly. Now they talk about four stages of jhana in the text. The first one you you're focusing on the object, and there's you keep directing your thoughts to it. And at the same time, you're evaluating the object to make it more comfortable. And then, as you get more and more absorbed in it, it becomes the single object that you're really into. It's like you know this. You're thinking about that one thing and nothing else. It and it's, you can get you can make a, a parallel with getting really involved in a novel or, or a book or something where you're just totally focused on the novel that you're not paying attention to anything else. But here the difference is you're dealing with a sensation in the body. And then you take that sensation and use it to fill the body. Like if there's a sense of ease that comes with the breath or a sense of rapture, you use that to fill the whole body. Now those five factors, um, directed thought, evaluation, singleness of object, ease, and rapture, those are the five factors of the first jhana. So here you're using the breath as your object and you just get really into the breath. Everything in the whole body becomes breath. And there's a sense of ease. You, you work with the breath so it gets comfortable. So that there's that sense of refreshment and then the sense of ease. And then you just maintain that. That's the first jhana. The second jhana, you can drop the direct of thought and the evaluation. You don't need them anymore because the breath is full. It's in the body. You just kind of plow into the, the present sensation. Just stay there. The third jhana, the rapture starts getting too oppressive. You've had enough of the rapture, so you drop that as a mental factor, and then it's just singleness of object and ease. And then finally, even you don't even think about whether it's pleasant or not, it's just, just really, really still. The mind gets really implanted in this sense of full body. And at that point, the breath is stopped. You're breathing through your pores. And your, your brain is still enough, so you're not using up the, the oxygen that would require you to breathe in and out. So the oxygen you're getting in your skin is enough. That's the fourth jhana. That's that's what's meant by jhana. So, so, that by, so that by the time we're releasing the mind, mm-hmm. we're in a jhana state. You're already, I mean, starting with the, the, the pleasure and the rapture, you're already there. And then it becomes a question of mastering it. Because, you know, many people feel, hey, I've got it, I've got it in a state. It's just going to stay this way forever. And next thing you know, it's gone. Because it's one of the easiest things to drop. Um, and so what you're learning how to do is how to stay centered there as, as much as, as you can. And then noticing how is it the mind loses its center. Sometimes it loses it because it's, it's running out of energy. It's not getting any sort of visceral kick out of it. So you say, well, that's when you bring in a little bit of gladdening in the mind. Let's go back for a little bit more rapture. Or when you find that you're getting too active, okay, let's calm it down. And then once it's calmed down, you say, okay, now in the next state, now that we're calmed down, we're steady, to what extent is this the most refined state of concentration I can manage at this point? To what extent can I detect other forms of unnecessary stress that I'm causing? 
when you see what you're doing to cause the stress, and you got that. So that, that brings us up to mastering jhana. And that number, step number what? Twelve. Yes, in that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think you answered part of my question in, in the last part that you just said, but I was wondering, when you get really steady in the mind, mm-hmm. and you're trying to stay steady or gladden the mind, satisfy the mind, there's a tendency to be able to do that for some time, but what I feel is, depending on how the day went, either one of those old reverberations can kind of get you knocked off Mm -hmm. the mind. And you almost have to get back to... um, Step one. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being sensitive to bodily fabrication. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of up and down. Uh, Not a lot, but Mm -hmm. there could be bouncing up and down between these tech threads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's not that you have to do one, two, three, four, five, six. Sometimes you find yourself going back to one or three or four or whatever is needed at the time. And that's part of this this mastery of the, the process is looking, what does the mind need right now? Then you go back to calming the bodily fabrication if that's what it needs. Okay, so you're calming bodily fabrication, so you're mm-hmm. not... Mm-hmm. Are you satisfying the gladdening? Why? You're, you're looking at... Your, your, your main concern now is the state of the mind. You're beginning to see okay, the impact the body has on the mind, the impact the mind has on itself. And sometimes to gladden the mind, all you have to do is just think about a few things, and that gets it gladder, more glad, gladder, <laughs> glassed. <laughs> Other times, um, you have to do some work with the breath. So what you're what you're doing in this state is saying, what does the mind need right now, and then work from there. And then you can pull out whatever trick you have. There's a question in the back. The way that you talk about it in terms of <clears throat> what does the um, what does the mind need now? What mm-hmm. am I? The way that you phrase those mm-hmm. um, is it sufficient to just Think those in your mind and wait for the answer, or is this a point for discursive thought? Or I'm a little confused about it. Well, part of it comes just through experience. Now, I've seen the mind like this before, and what worked in the past. And and secondly, just looking at it in those terms helps. Many times, it's seeing, learning how to ask the right question. You've got the answer right there. I remember back in tenth, and when I was ten years old. My family moved out to Kansas, and the Kansas newspaper had Ann Landers. I'd never seen Ann Landers in my life before. And I thought she was really wise. You know, all these people writing questions, and she would answer them just like that. And then as I got older, I realized that she had those questions fed to her. I mean, as soon as you see the question, you know the answer. And for the person writing, writing the letter, the problem was getting the question into a proper question. Once you got the proper question, the answer is pretty obvious sometimes. So in this case, if you learn to see, Look at your mind. Okay, what does my mind need right now? Does it need to be gladdened or does it need to be steadied? Does it need to be sort of calmed down or does it need to be lifted up? And then the tools you have here in the breath. Okay, what, what's, what, is, what do I need in terms of the different skills you've mastered up to that point? What does it need right now? 
And when you learn to bring that question to the mind, and then look at the different tools you have, many times, over time, you get more and more quick to identify what the problem is and what the solution is going to be. Question there. I'm not sure if this happens in monastic life, but have you found that an array of events occur that overwhelm your ability to be mindful? Um, are there ever any situations, or have you heard from lay people <laughs> describe it as such, that there are sometimes events happen where you just can't sit? Mm-hmm. And there's a need to maybe walk away for a bit and take up some movement sure. uh, exercise yeah. such as yoga or the qigong that was mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's 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 one of your tools. So among it's not a sin. No, it's not a sin. I mean, <laughs> among to among walk away for a while. <laughs> no, among the monks in the forest tradition, one of the one of these practices that's used in this case is known as walking to the next mountain and walking back. Just you, you just pick up your stuff and you go to the next mountain, and then you come back. I mean, you, and part of it's like learning how to be a boxer. First step in boxing. I, I, I was taught Thai boxing before I was a monk. Okay, Not after I was a monk. <laughs> before I was a monk, I was in Thailand for two years, and I um, I learned Thai boxing. Number one step in Thai boxing is retreat. And I think in almost any of the martial arts, it's how to get out. And this is you know it's a useful skill. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. That's also in the art of war, mm-hmm. Sun Tzu, and there are times that you should retreat. Right. Um, never made that correlation. But. Uh-huh. And also, does the is that one of the ideas behind the walking meditation? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just sit all day. Mm-hmm. And you can walk as fast and as slow as you like. I mean, this, this egret walking that they have. That's not really good for working off a lot of extra energy. Mm-hmm. But okay. so you can just walk around the block, walk in at whatever speed you need. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Time. Okay, it's time to break.